so welcome to the Writers Guild of Alberta online reading series. Um, this series can be found on the WGA YouTube channel. Uh, I'm Greg Rhino and today we're talking to Glenn Dixon uh, about his novel, uh, Bootleg Stardust. Yeah, Bootleg Stardust. All right. Um, I'm going to start with, uh, I'm, I'm coming to you from uh, Guelph, so I'm going to uh, do a land acknowledgement for uh, the city of Guelph. Uh, today we acknowledge the Mississaugas of the Credit First Nation of the Anishinaabek peoples on whose traditional territory we are meeting. Uh, and Glenn's coming to you from Calgary. So in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge that we live, work, and play on the traditional territories of the Blackfoot Confederacy, the Tusutina and the Yaxi Nakoda Nations, uh, the Métis Nations, and all the people who make their homes in the Treaty 7 region of Southern Alberta. Uh, so Glenn, uh, you, <clears throat> according to your, your biography here, that comes with this book right here, um, you are the number one best-selling author of the memoir, Juliet's Answer. Uh, you have played in bands all your life, traveled through more than 75 countries, and written for the National, Geogra for National Geographic, I should say, uh, The New Yorker, The Globe and Mail, The Walrus, and Psychology Today, uh, before becoming a full-time writer. He taught uh, Utah High School for uh, 20 years, and you live in Calgary with your girlfriend. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about the book and then read us a little bit from the book? Sure. Um, this is my first published novel because the others were nonfiction. And Bootleg Stardust, it's, uh, it's 1974 and uh, a young guy from nowhere named Levi Jackson, who we're about to meet. Um, he's uh, sitting in his basement sending out demo tapes to record companies and miracle of miracles, he actually gets a call back and is invited to join this uh, almost famous band called Downtown Exit. And at the beginning, that's probably all you need to know. All right, that's great. Uh, would, you, uh, would you like to read a little bit from Yeah. Uh... So what I'm going to read is the very beginning of the book. So you don't need any background, really. Um, uh, maybe I could just say that uh, all, the, all the chapter titles are actually songs. And this one is called The Blues Don't Live Here No More. And it goes like this. Our keyboard player quit, but we turned up for the gig anyway. Didn't matter. At most, the Salty Dog Pub had about five people in it. That included the bartender who felt sorry for us and brought us a pitcher of Molson beer. He said he liked the way we played Space Oddity. Not many bands covered David Bowie, he said, so it's pretty good to even try. We'd loaded in through a spring snowstorm. Calgary still gets tons of snow in April, and I'd only worn my jean jacket, the one with the corduroy collar. That was warm enough, but my Adidas runners weren't so great. My socks got wet and they squelched a bit every time I moved on the stage. Rudy was beside me on the bass guitar. Katrina was on drums and together we were all that was left of the band called Breakwater. The Salty Dog Pub wasn't great, that's for sure. It smelled a bit and they had fishing nets hung up on the walls just tied ropes, really, hung with plastic starfish and conch shells. At the back, a pool table sat under a big fake Tiffany lamp. As soon as we started playing, though, I mostly forgot about our troubles. I had a Fender Stratocaster with a sunburst finish and a rosewood fretboard. That's a pretty nice guitar, in case you didn't know. And just to hold its weight in my hand was to dream, to imagine I was a rock star and stage in front of thousands. 
And at the salty dog, even with no one there, at least I got to pretend I was someone important. Just the other week, Rudy said I had droopy eyelids like Paul McCartney. He said I could probably pose for Tiger Beat magazine and that all the girls would go nuts over me. I told him to fuck off. Rudy, just so you know, has straw-colored hair that's as stiff and straight as a scarecrow's. He was a little paunchy, too, and kind of short. We were pretty good, though, all things considered. Katrina wanted to do more Motown, but we drew the line at that. Me and Rudy wanted to do stuff like Pink Floyd and David Bowie, and most of all, we wanted to write our, more of our own songs and get a record deal. A couple of songs into our second set, some construction workers came in, still in their orange overalls, their hard hats tucked up under their arms. They headed straight for the green felt of the pool table at the back, like, like it was the promised land. They dropped their hard hats, chalked up their cues, and started racking up the balls. We were playing one of our own songs, Hello, Juliet, when one of the pool players stopped to check us out. He listened for a moment before yelling out for us to play Smoke on the Water. I stopped. We don't do that one, I said into the mic, and it might have come across as a little too brash. The guy grimaced and started to stride across the empty dance floor towards us. He was big. And he had the pool cue balanced over his shoulder like a, like a fishing pole or something. Buddy, he said. But now he was Ivan Rudy. Come on, I'll give you five bucks to play Smoke on the Water. I don't know why he was going after Rudy. I was the one on the microphone. The stage was small, maybe six inches higher than the dance floor. And Rudy was short, like I said. So he stood about eye level with this guy. Katrina leaned out from behind her drum kit peering between the symbols. Rudy, she called, I'll give you 10 bucks not to play smoke on the water. Rudy took a step backwards. This guy was big and Rudy wasn't exactly John Wayne. Uh, we don't really know any deep purple, he blubbered. The big guy scowled and reached down to Rudy's guitar cable. It was a long one, looping around all over the stage floor. And this guy just reached down and yanked on it hand over hand. Rudy had the end of it tucked into his guitar strap so it wouldn't pop out, and the guy just hauled Rudy over. Rudy fell sideways, and the guy kept pulling on the cord, reeling Rudy in across the stage like he was a fish. Poor Rudy floundered a bit, then rolled onto his back and started playing the riff from Smoke on the Water. He wasn't the best bass player in the world, but still, I give him credit for that. Too late, buddy, said the big guy. Now I stepped forward. I mean, geez, I, I didn't want to, but I kind of had to. I lifted up my foot and kicked at the guy like some sort of bad karate movie. And my soggy running shoe caught him right in the middle of the forehead. His eyes bore a confused expression for a moment, and I could see the imprint of my tread on his forehead before he toppled backwards. Rudy scrambled back onto his feet. Katrina stood up from behind her drum stool, gaping at us, holding up her drumsticks like she didn't know if she should start the next song or not. And far away, in the back, by the pool table, this guy's buddies all turned to gawk at us, their big cow heads swiveling around to take in what had just happened. Run, I said. And we did. I took my guitar, and Rudy scooped up his bass, 
Katrina had her sticks, but we just left the rest of the gear and peeled out of there, out through the back door, out into the cold, our breaths huffing out in cloudy blasts. We ran for our van, and I struggled to get the keys out of my pants even as I was running. And just as we got to the van, the front door of the pub flew open, and this guy's buddies were all trying to squeeze through it at the same time, like the Three Stooges or something. I hopped into the driver's seat while Rudy and Katrina piled in through the sliding door around the other side. I thumped the van into gear and we tore out of there, fishtailing a bit in the slush. The snow was coming down hard now and it seemed like the end of things, probably because it was. And that's the start of the, that's the, start of the whole book. That was great, Glenn, thanks. Uh, I feel like I feel like I've spent some time in the uh, the salty dog pub. That seems uh, fairly familiar. Yeah, um, and and you've got some uh, some rock and roll credentials yourself. You played. Uh, you, it says in your bio that you've played in bands all your life, and and you currently uh, play with a band now. Even though I imagine it's it's kind of tricky in this uh, this pandemic world that we're living in to get together with your friends and and play music. Are you uh, have you managed to uh, to get together with the barrel? You dog? know what? There was uh, there was one other guy in the band who was one of the main songwriters and me and him got together through through things. We we're kind of in the same bubble. Uh, and then we kind of added on the drummer came about a month ago. Tomorrow night, in fact, is the first time we're going to have there's five guys in the band that we're going to have all five guys again. I'm, I'm really excited to play again. That'll feel good. That'll be yeah. great. Um, I wanted to ask one of the one of the questions. I uh, I, I think uh, that that first scene is really indicative of how fun the novel is. I, I was uh, I got through it pretty quickly. It was uh, it was a lot of fun to read. Um, a lot of uh, a lot of twists. A lot of exciting moments. Um, and uh, so much great description of of playing shows and and playing music and and uh, being in in places that. Uh, that really exist and uh, being in situations and scenes that really exist, uh, recording in places that really exist. Um, uh, you, you, uh, you and your band, The Barrel Dogs, have, uh, have recorded a number of original songs that are described in the novel. I think uh, there's one that is um, Downtown Exit, the band, uh, the big famous band. They, they, uh, their, their big hit is, uh, at first, is, is Painted Ladies, which I yeah. think is... Painted that ladies. Song, I think that's yeah, that's it. Ian Thomas. In fact, from the same year, 1974. So uh, in all the, the songs in the book, that's the only cover version. Yeah, and I kind of wanted to have one cover that people go, oh, yeah, I know that song. I like that song. Yeah, just to give it. I mean, I, I could hear it while uh, when they were talking about it. I was wondering if that was the song that you're you're talking about. But there's uh, there's all of these um, these original songs that um, that downtown exit has and uh, and the barrel dogs have recorded these these uh, these songs. So what I wanted to know was uh, was what came first, the story, or or had you written these songs first and then you applied them to the story? Well, the I, the idea for the story, I always wanted to write a you know a rock and roll novel, I, I, and I wanted to set it in that time period as well. Anything from you know Sergeant Pepper's to about uh, Bohemian Rhapsody. You know, I was really just a little kid at that time, but. But that's the music, that's the soundtrack of my life, man. So uh, I, I, I knew I wanted to set it in that time period. And then really, I just lucked out because I've been playing with this band for four or five years. The other guys in the band are superb musicians. And, um, you know, kind of older guys like me. So I think we dreamed of being rock stars in our 20s and then 
life happened and, you know, kids and divorces and moving around. And, and we kind of all came together miraculously four or five years ago. And I think we kind of looked around the room and go, whoa, man, we're actually pretty good. So <laughs> I, I, I did start writing this book, but um, pretty early on, I kind of realized, um, well, it's about a rock band. I could certainly have some songs. And I approached the guys. There's one guy, uh, Michael Danglemeyer, who is a, really a great songwriter. Uh, there's uh, Jim Sarantis, who's our lead vocalist. And, and then at that point, I think I was hearing his voice as a singer, Jim's real voice as a singer, thinking, that guy's Frankie in the book. Frankie's completely different than Jim, but that voice is, <laughs> is Frankie's book. Nice guy. Yeah. Great. So, you know, it just kind of progressed from there as we had really three songwriters in the band, three singers, so we could cover kind of a lot of different storylines. So yeah. it kind of really just all came together. So there was, there was some synergy then. It wasn't, yeah. uh, it wasn't too, I, I was imagining, uh, you know, you would, I, I sort of imagine you having written this novel and then, you know, trying to come up with songs that were the songs of like a, you know, an international rock sensation in 1974. And that might be a little bit daunting, but it's, uh, it's nice to, to have that grow organically. That's really cool. Yeah. Um, and you're, uh, and one, one question I'm dying to ask you um, is, uh, is you, you did some recording with uh, the Barrel Dogs as Downtown Exit. Um, and you, uh, you recorded in some pretty interesting places. Um, and one of them was, uh, I, I didn't realize this until I, I read about it in the, uh, the book, but uh, you recorded using the, uh, the Rolling Stones uh, mobile recording studio, uh, which is, uh, you know, what the, the Stones used to record uh, one of, if not my favorite Stones album, which is Exile on Main Street. Yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, so how did you, how did you find yourselves uh, using this, this piece of uh, rock history? That's pretty amazing. Well, you know, every, everything just kind of fell into place. Uh, I, I couldn't have planned this better, and I didn't plan it. It just sort of happened. But uh, I knew about the Rolling Stones mobile. Let me, I'll, I'll give a little background for people that don't know. So this thing is like an, in, an old truck. It, it looks like a small moving van. And the Rolling Stones had it built in, I don't know what year, 69, 71. They did sticky fingers on it. Uh, and most famously, exile on Main Street, uh, where they were. They were exiled to, to France because they couldn't afford to pay the taxes in Great Britain anymore. So they took it to a, a villa in the south of France. And this old truck sat out front of this villa. And in the back of this truck, I should say, is a, a state of the art at that time recording studio. Um, it had sat, it, it, oh, I should say it was used by everybody in the early 70s when they kind of found out, wow, this, this sound is great and we don't have to pay for a recording studio. We don't have to be locked into their hours. We can do it at three o'clock in the morning uh, wherever we want. Led Zeppelin did bits and pieces of four of their albums. Uh, the live version of Bob Marley, No Woman, No Cry, that's Rolling Stones Mobile. Uh, Deep Purple, that's why that, I kind of joke about Smoke on the Water at the beginning there, but uh, that song was recorded on the Rolling Stones mobile, as a matter of fact. And um, 
I, I forget the exact sequence of events, but I knew it had been bought by the, the National Music Center in Calgary, which is this astonishing building. It looks like the Guggenheim Museum or something. It's amazing. And uh, they bought it. Uh, they built a room around this truck and refurbished it and uh, got it all working again. And I, I think I phoned up at some point and said, you know, is, is anybody, are you, can you use this thing? Or, and it, they said, you know what, you're in luck because we just kind of finished rewiring it. And uh, they have studios upstairs. So all the cables are running out of the back of this truck. It's, it, this truck appears in the book as well. And um, we got the sound of the early 70s by actually recording. And it was amazing to walk into the back of this truck. You know, you're thinking Keith Richards was in here and Jimmy Page was in here and Bob Marley. They were in the back of this beat up old truck. And now I'm in the back of it. So really amazing. So you want to see a little video about it? Are we I, ready I, for that? That'd be amazing. OK, let's uh, let's set this up. Okay, here we go. This should play. This is about two minutes long. Here we go. Let me get rid of that. Um, so, you know, I know we're talking about a book here, but I, I, I really wanted people to hear the, the real music. So that's the music of Downtown Exit. And you can see the Rolling Stones. That, that, that was the real recording session. And I, I, I want people to see how amazing my fellow musicians are on, on that track. That's the track we were talking about, Painted Ladies. It's, uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm just thrilled with it. So, so not only did you uh, did you record on the Rolling Stones uh, mobile recording studio, but you you had your album mastered at what is probably the most famous uh, you know pop music 
studio, which apparently was not uh, a pop music studio to begin with, but was a classical music studio, yeah. which is Abbey Road. Um, so uh, can you tell me a little bit about that? Uh, did you, were you at Abbey Road? How did that, how did that whole process work? Yeah, so um, like I said, just so many amazing things just, just fell into place here. So uh, we had recorded, I think there's 16 songs total. Um, we had five of them were not quite finished. So there's a process called mastering, which is the final sort of tuning of the, of the songs and everything. And uh, Abbey Road plays a big part in the book. I think chapter two is when, when Levi Jackson gets the phone call from the record company, come on over to London, England uh, to audition for this band, Downtown Exit. Uh, the audition is at Abbey Road Studios. Um, when I wrote that, I had no idea that I was gonna be actually going there myself. It, it's great as a, as a writer because I did want things to be authentic. So, I, you know, everyone knows what the crosswalk is, is like. I, I bet there's a number of you out there that have walked across that crosswalk, but uh, I had no idea what really the studio looked like inside. And um, it, again, it was one of those things. I, I, I phoned them and I said, you know, and I thought ah, there's, there's no way, even if it's possible, it'll cost tens of thousands of dollars. This is the studio that the Beatles did everything in, everything everything they recorded um you know to me this is the houses of the holy this this is a holy ground for me so uh oh do you want to see that video should i show that now yeah let's see okay and then we can do more questions afterwards but um um yeah. so this was later in the process um i would say that the book was still maybe first draft but you know the basic plot was there and i knew there was abbey road so and we had these five songs like i said so in this one, you're going to see Abbey Road. You're going to see the inside of Abbey Road because I did go there. I phoned. I'll tell you a couple of stories. I, <laughs> I, I, I went over. I phoned first of all to to book it and was amazed that I, who am I? I'm nobody. I'm allowed to go into Abbey Road, but and it wasn't that expensive. Uh, I flew over to London. I'm greatly jet lagged, as you might see in this video. It was the next day. And, uh, and there were certain things, like I remember I phoned, I phoned Abbey Road when I was in London the night before, and I said, what's the, what's the protocol for like getting in? Is there like some security I gotta go through? And the lady on the phone said, well, you basically walk up the stairs and you come in the door. <laughs> yeah, okay. And uh, I, I don't know if you'll see this look on my face, but as I was walking in there, I was just going, Oh my God, Paul McCartney was here and John Lennon was here and Ringo Starr. There's a, a photos all over the wall. There's a picture of, of a Ringo Starr eating a hot dog, I think it is, with this sort of stunned expression on his face. Anyway, <laughs> let, let me hook up the video for you. And you'll be able to tell by this video that I'm a huge Beatles fan. <laughs> all right, let's get this going here. All right, here we go. So now we come to what's probably my favorite thing about this whole project, Abbey Road. The crosswalk and the Beatles and, and here they are with the famous album cover. Now I have to say that the Beatles are probably my favorite band of all time. And Abbey Road is probably my favorite album. And here's the Abbey Road crossing today. And if you look real close, that's me walking across. 
because we had the opportunity to take five of our songs to Abbey Road Studios right before the pandemic struck. The studio is literally at the end of the crosswalk. And there's the famous stairs. Here's the very young Beatles on the steps in 1964. So I walked up those very same steps and in through those legendary front doors. I'd arranged a session with a recording engineer in one of the mastering suites, but I had some time and I went downstairs first to see the studios. There's pictures all over the walls. Here's the Beatles recording a day in the life. Here's Pink Floyd that did Dark Side of the Moon in this building. They do mostly soundtracks there now, like Lord of the Rings, and some of the Star Wars movies. And up on another wall, here's the framed chart of the string quartet from yesterday. Here's Studio Two, where the Beatles recorded almost every single song they ever did. You could hardly believe it standing there. And then it was time for my own session. Went up the stairs, all the way up the stairs to the third floor where the mastering suites are. Down another hallway and in through a door to meet Alex Wharton. And this guy has done remasters for the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and Radiohead and Coldplay and you name it. And this is one of the songs we were working on. It's called Wine Dark Sea. I can see the ships and their fooling sails that clooms the dark the wine dark sea so let me explain this is the couple on the cover that's levi of course the main character but beside him is ariadne she's from one of the greek islands she hadn't lived there for years but she still dreams of it, you know. So Levi writes this song for her to win her over. It's about sailing around these islands, something she used to do with her father. But that's a whole other story. See 
So that was it. I kind of think if I, if I could talk to my 20-year-old self and tell them I would one day be recording at Abbey Road, well, that would make it all worthwhile. So um, that's a song called, I'm glad you got to hear that one. It's called Wine Dark Sea. And, you know, I, I get carried away talking about the music and these studios and stuff. And I sometimes forget, hey, I'm, I'm an author. I'm supposed to be talking about the book here. But, uh, but you, get, you got a few things there that the, the couple on the main cover are uh, Levi. And uh, I guess it's a bit of a spoiler. What, but what becomes his girlfriend, Ariadne, who's Greek, the daughter of a famous uh, Greek film uh, director. Um, that's one of Levi's songs. So one of the problems is that he joins this already intact band. They've already done an album. It's already been like really successful. They've had hits and he joins the band and he's not really wanted. Like, I, I can't give you too much. There's so many spoilers in this book, but I can't give you too many uh, hints about what happens and why. Oh, you know what? I'm going to say a few things, <laughs> even though these are kind of spoilers, but this is still chapter two. So what ends up happening in chapter two is that he goes to Abbey Road. He uh, passes the audition. He gets hired. He phones home. He goes, oh, my God, I got this gig. I'm, I'm in downtown exit. But he's not really, because what happens at the beginning is there their guitar player, the main guitar player in Downtown Exit, he's dropping acid all the time in his concerts. Um, this is based on a true story, by the way. And uh, halfway through the concerts, he'd start flipping out. Sometimes he could make it through the concerts, sometimes he couldn't. So they actually hired Levi, to, uh, who knew all his parts. Levi's a really good guitar player, good singer, to play off stage behind the curtains. And they'd set up this folding metal chair and a microphone and a guitar. And the sound man had hooked up a system where they could just watch the main guitar player. And if he started freaking out and not being able to play tomorrow, they, they switch things over to Levi. Levi is not on the stage. And, you know, this, this poor guitar player is probably, you know, trying to hit his guitar and different things are coming out because it's now Levi playing off stage. So, that's kind of the first thing that happens. So he thinks he's in the band, but he's not really. I think that's uh, that might be uh, in uh, a little known rock and roll tradition. I think there's a few bands who have who have pulled that move. Yeah, uh, you know, a little bit of a little bit of extra help uh, from the curtains. Um, you had said uh, uh, in your acknowledgments at the end, you had said that uh, that this was the book that you had always wanted to write. Um, do you think, uh, and I know you want to talk about the process of writing this book, could you talk a little bit about how the novel came to be and uh, how it's different from, from other work that you've written? Yeah, sure. Uh, I'm very conscious that this is the Writers Guild of Alberta, and uh, so I'm talking to mostly writers, and uh, uh, this is my first published novel. But let me tell you, like a lot of us, I've got four novels I wrote when I was younger sitting in drawers that I hope to God never see the light of day. I think the first one I wrote when I was 22 and it's just God awful terrible. But I, I think I needed to do that, to go through that process and realize, okay, well, the next one will be a bit better. And the next one was a little bit better. And I, I always finish them. So there are four full novels. Um, the fourth one almost got published. And I think I was, I remember being in the office of a literary agent. It's not my current literary agent. 
And he said, you know, I, I, I don't think I want to work with this, but you know, it seems like you're trying hard and pretty good writer. So what are your other interests? And I said, well, I really like traveling. You know, I was one of those young guys backpacking all over the world. And I'd also done a master's in um, linguistics. So he said, well, why don't you write about like a travel book, but it's about languages around the world. And I kind of went, Oh my God, why didn't I think of that? So that ended up being my first book, Pilgrim in the Palace of Words. Uh, nonfiction, obviously, from my travels around the world and my, my uh, background in linguistics. Uh, that was with the press, Dundurn Press out of Toronto, good mid-sized press. Um, did well enough that uh, they asked for a second book. I wrote about music around the world, still nonfiction, completely nonfiction. And... Um, Oh, I took zitar lessons on the banks of the Ganges, and I went to Bob Marley's house in Jamaica, and I just wrote about all. It was really a travel book, nonfiction. Third book we've talked a little bit about, it was Juliet Sanser. Um, that was a big breakthrough book for me. I got a literary agent. Uh, it was published in 12 countries and five languages, and Simon & Schuster, so big publisher. And that particular story uh, was not really like the other two not it was a memoir so it's nonfiction. but I also thought I'm never gonna have a story like that happen to me again it was astonishing the things that happened to me and I I just went along for the ride and wrote about it and so for my next book Simon Schuster's going well what do you got next and I thought how about a novel and I think they're going mm, I don't know about that and I know my literary agent was kind of saying the same thing you know it's hard to make the switch from nonfiction to to fiction but but I did because there was no other option really and I always had this book in my mind that I want to write about rock music uh, I want to write about that particular era and then this one started to come together and uh, when they started to read bits and pieces of it they thought yeah, okay, we can probably work with this. I would say there was many more drafts of this one than the other ones. I had to work a lot harder at this one. It's interesting because uh, one of the other things I wanted to, to ask you about was just um, how you blur uh, truth and fiction. And it's interesting that you you have this, um, you know, you have you have so much experience with, uh, with nonfiction um, because it's clear you're bringing a lot of it into your novel, right? There's, you're mm -hmm. writing about, bands that existed you're writing uh you know you're you're um borrowing from the stories of you know the stones in exile and and you know the, the story of uh of abbey road and, and you're 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 using all this real stuff in your writing mm -hmm. um, and i was wondering um where do you um you know how do you how do you walk that line between uh truth and fiction in your stories and and uh do you do you while you were writing this book did you um have any difficulty uh, did you go too far into the world of nonfiction and have to pull back? Like, how did you find that balance? Yeah, I, I know I just talked about uh, different drafts. So one of the things going on in the rewrites was uh, my um, my editor, Sarah, at Simon & Schuster. She would say, you know, because when you finally get the, the book going, it, it's got to have a flow to it. And I was putting it a little bit too much about, you know, I don't know, some concert hall in Amsterdam. And I would say you know, Jimmy Page played here. This is the first time he used the bow on his electric guitar. Kind of all this trivia. And she said, you know, it's interesting, but it's kind of like pulling you out of the story. So we had to take some of that out. Mm -hmm. uh, 
I think it was still important that I knew that stuff. Like one of the one of the things that I'm proud about this book is I think it really is authentic. So uh, it when when I have the scenes where Levi is up on stage playing his guitar, that is kind of what it feels like the heat of the spotlights and they're blinding you. You can't see the audience in front of you, but but you can hear them. And uh, a lot of a lot of the details about, you know, I really have been in recording studios, so I, I know what goes down there in that. And I wanted it to be really authentic. Yeah. All right. Great. I, I, uh, this is sort of a, a little bit of a turn, but, um, one of the, we are, I, I believe we're kind of getting close to the hour here. Um, okay. and one of the questions that I wanted to ask was, um, uh, you know, the idea of, um, of authenticity, uh, you know, rock and roll is, is so often portrayed in Hollywood. And I think sometimes they get it right. And sometimes they get it wrong. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, Grant Lawrence from the CBC and, and the smugglers and, and, you know, he's, he's got some, some good can rock pedigree. He uh, mm. said that, uh, uh, that your book reminded him of uh, a little bit of almost famous and also a little bit of, of Wayne's world. If, if uh, Wayne and Garth actually joined a band, um, do you have a favorite rock and roll movie? Um, there's a lot. Almost famous is a big favorite of mine. Uh, I like the commitments also based on a book by Roddy Doyle, right? Yeah, great, great book. Yeah. Great movie. Uh, Dazed and Confused is a good one too. Yeah. Um, all of those, they just have the soundtrack of, of those particular eras. So um, yeah, those are all big, big favorites of mine. And I guess I should say about, uh, you know, the story of this book is not at all about the glamour and the fame and the money because you know the tagline i'm looking at the cover here says sometimes you have to hit rock bottom on on the on your way to the top and levi you know i gave that example of he thinks he passed the audition and they hire him to play off stage and every time he thinks he's getting a break he's he's getting screwed over by the record company or by the other guys in his band and losing the rights to his own songs and uh, deeply, deeply in debt. And those truly are the things that were happening in those days. It's uh, it's a long way to the top if you want to rock and roll. Yeah. But someone once said, yeah, uh, that's great. Uh, was there anything else you want to talk about before we finish up today? Oh, well, um, I'm just glad everybody's listening. I, I, I'm super happy to talk to writers and I, you know, I could talk for hours about the process of writing this book and, you know, just reading today about um, sort of the intuition of being a writer and just kind of feeling when, when something is right or, or, you know, there, there's times where you're thinking, oh, the plot has to go in this direction. And really the characters kind of tell you, nope, no, it doesn't. You got to kind of follow the characters that you've built and the world that you've built. And you kind of let it take, on a life of its own. Um, I, I'm happy with this book because it's really, it's a fun read. You know, there's no, there's no literary pretensions going on here. There's, I, I, I don't pretend to be Charles Dickens or anything. Uh, this is a fun read. Like, uh, I think my publisher wanted to compare it to Nick Hornby. Another of my favorite movies and books is High Fidelity, right? Just a great, great. So that's kind of what I set out to do. Well, I had, I had a ton of fun reading it. Uh, I, I would recommend it. It's, uh, it's, it, was, uh, it was really enjoyable. I read through it very quickly. Uh, it, it felt very familiar. 
Um, and uh, and after this, I'm going to go uh, throw in my uh, my exile on Main Street, the, uh, you know, the 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 vinyl, not that weird remastered CD version. That's the only one where the vocals are way too high, and they redid They're, something. I'm like, the real thing, man. I don't listen to the real thing. So uh, thank you for uh, for reminding me how great that record is and uh, how great the the 70s were in uh, in rock and roll. Uh, yeah. It was great. Talking to you. Yeah. Uh, thanks, Greg. It was fun. Yeah. Take care. Uh, this is, uh, I should probably say once again, uh, thanks to uh, the Writers Guild of Alberta for having us. And uh, I believe, Glenn, you have a website, which is uh, uh, Glenn with two N's Dixon.com. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, .ca. .ca. I apologize. Yeah. It's Canada, man. Glenn, Canada. Glenn Dixon, D-I-X-O-N dot C-A. Uh, uh, some of the music's up there, some of the videos I just showed and, and lots more. All right. Well, I really enjoyed talking to you. Yeah. Take care. Thanks.